Well, good morning, uh, everybody. Uh, we are finishing up January, and so what that means is we're also finishing up a series that we started at the first of the year called Begin Again. And so as we finish that up, uh, you know, it was really founded on uh, this simple concept that really is rooted in the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and that is simply this, is that God calls us all with the opportunity to begin again. Uh, that means that none of us uh, have our, our too far. We're, we haven't gone too far. Uh, we're not too distant from God that he can't move in our life. But what we've been learning is that in order for us to begin again, we've got to begin with honesty and truth. We've got to tell ourselves the truth uh, about every area of our life to be honest about who we are and where we are uh, with ourselves and with God and with others. And it's been a powerful concept. But sometimes when we look at those concepts, they can seem just like propositions or principles. Uh, and we can reduce church down and we can reduce a, a life with God down to just some tips and techniques and some, some ways to try to improve your life a little bit better. And not that that's bad on one level, but it's just a little incomplete. And what I love about scripture is scripture doesn't just set forth an outline. Uh, God didn't just drop down an owner's manual uh, for you to put this whole thing together. He gave us a story. He gave us a narrative. And one of the most powerful things that we can do when we look at the, the truth that God has given us is to look at through the lens of real life people because we're real life people. The story of, uh, of the people in scripture are uh, of highs and lows. They're, they're stories of uh, great successes on one day only to be met with the great failures the next. There are really no heroes in the story of scripture. There's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. There's a lot of tears, and there's laughter on the other side. But it is a complete gamut. It's a complete picture of what it means. And so what we have with the story of Scripture is not just an outline, but we actually have the stories of people. And so as we finish up the series, what we're going to do today is we're going to look at this concept of begin again, not through proposition, but through the lens of an actual person. Uh, I've got a lot of favorite uh, people that I follow in through scripture. I love their stories and stuff like that. But one of my favorite uh, people to follow the trajectory of their life is a guy named Peter. You may be familiar with him. He was one of Jesus' disciples, but we get the story uh, of Peter played out. And uh, the reason I think it resonates with me so much is it is a, a story of highs and lows. It's a, it's a story of those great successes followed by great failures and great promises and followed by uh, these, these kind of desperate moments of faith and these doubts and these fears. And so for all of us, I think Peter's life paints for us this picture of what it could mean for all of us to begin again. And so we're going to follow his story. We're going to begin in uh, the Gospel of John, and we're going to trek through the Gospel of John a little bit as an overview. And then we're going to land at a kind of a postscript scene, an after credit scene in, uh, in Peter's life and to see the possibility of what it could look like for an individual to begin. And my hope is, is that as we see Peter begin again, we can find ourselves in the story and we can find the power and the resolve and the confidence for us to begin again as well. The story that we're going to cover today, interestingly, starts with what we just did, the Lord's Supper. Near uh, the end of Jesus' life, before he went to the cross, uh, you have the story of him gathering his disciples together and they shared a meal uh, the meal was significant. It wasn't a new meal. It was a very old one. It was one that they did every year. It was a centerpiece uh, in large part of the people of, Jew, uh, of, of Israel. It was the Jews. Uh, it was their, a part of their calendar. They celebrated the Passover meal together. And what was different about this particular meal that we just took uh, is that Jesus reshaped the meal. 
uh, he took the elements that they were so used to taking and he redefined them around himself. And he said, all those were a shadow that were looking forward to me. This would have been a startling uh, incident. This would have been a startling scene uh, in the lives of even the disciples. Uh, to take a, a, an old, uh, old ritual, something that had deep significance and was tied to an Old Testament story, uh, an old story of uh, your heritage, and now to redefine it was, was a startling picture. It would have been hard to stomach and hard to grasp and hard to understand. But on the heels of that, on the cusp of that, uh, Jesus did something really uh, uh, to kind of uh, up the bar a little bit. Uh, he threw him another curve. And the story in John's gospel, in John chapter 13, says that he actually dressed himself up like a servant. He actually wrapped a towel around his waist, and then he began, and he knelt, and he washed the disciples' feet. And as much as the Passover meal being redefined would have been startling, this would have been startling as well. Uh, many people, uh, the disciples in the room, believed this was to be their king, that he was the coming king of Israel. And at no time in their history had they had a king that uh, would have knelt uh, in the posture of a servant, a common slave, and washed their feet. Uh, they would have not understood what was going on, and so Jesus had to explain it to them. And he gave them this charge in John chapter 13. He said, just as I've washed your feet, you've got to wash one another's feet. And as he was saying this, you've got to imagine what it would have been like in the room. You've just experienced the, what for us we call the Last Supper. We've seen Jesus, who was supposed to be the king, posture himself as a slave. But then something else happens to Jesus. Jesus' demeanor shifts and changes. Uh, you, you would have expected at this moment, they would have expected that we're mar marching into Jerusalem. This is kind of the height of expectation. We've been following this guy for three years and now it's all coming to a head. This is the moment we've all been waiting for. This is the moment of victory. We're going to march into Jerusalem. We're going to push out the Romans. We've got the king of the Jews here, Jesus, and he's going to reinstate Israel in its rightful place. We are on the cusp of something great, the anticipation before the big game. But after all these demonstrative acts from Passover being redefined to Jesus acting like a servant, they look at his countenance and in John chapter 13, verse 21, it tells us what they see. After Jesus had explained everything to them, he was troubled in his spirit. And he testified to them, very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. Jesus visibly, uh, tangibly could be seen to, be, to have an angst in him to have an inner turmoil that spilled out. And if you were wondering what was causing it, it was, it, it was expelled by the very words, very truly, I tell you, one of you in this room is going to betray me. Now, put yourself in the seat for a second. What would it have felt like to be in that moment? You've, you've devoted three years of your life uh, to this man. There would have been a lot of times to take an exit ramp. Uh, there were in a lot of moments when the heat was turned up so high, when it was hard. There were sleepless nights. There were stories about them straining on, uh, against the wind. There were stories about being met with all kinds of opposition. And now they're on the fringe of what they had been waiting for. And, and you've got to imagine what it would have been like in the room to say, well, no, now's not the time to betray Jesus. Now's the time to come in and usher Jesus in. But Jesus knew something about them that they didn't yet know about themselves, that there was betrayal in the heart of the people in the room. And as he tells the story, they, they take the Last Supper, and, 
as Jesus dips the bread in the wine, he says, the, the person that will receive this will be the one that will betray me. And we're familiar enough with the story uh, these days, I think, to, even if you're not familiar with church, you've probably heard the name Judas. He hands the bread to Judas, and Judas immediately leaves the room. And as he leaves the room, he goes out and he, he betrays Jesus. But in those moments uh, in the story, there was a lot of tension that was on the backdrop of that. Before people knew about Judas, they were asking questions about themselves. John 13 verse 22 actually tells us the questions that were being asked. His disciples stared at one another and at a loss for, to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. The disciples did what you would do. They looked around the circle and asked, well, who's it going to be? Is it him? Is it him? Is it him? And they knew what Jesus said, and they knew that Jesus could lie, so they knew that something bad was going to happen, but they didn't know who it was going to be. And so they were asking the question that most of us ask, but the thing about Peter was, is Peter verbalized what most of you internalize. When most of us ask internally, Peter had a habit of saying out loud, and so you get this picture at this moment from this point forward in the story of Jesus of two parallel stories. Interestingly, we would know that Jesus is the centerpiece of the story. He's what the story is all about. But the way that John chooses to tell the story from this point forward runs a parallel narrative about a guy named Peter. And I believe he does it because he wants to show us something. He wants to show us not just the propositional truth about what Jesus did and who he was, <clears throat> but he also wanted to give us a consistent narrative that runs parallel to it to show us in real time what it looks like for the gospel to be made real and individual so that we can see someone actually begin again. And so we get the truth, but we also get the truth with flesh and bones. We get it with failure and success. And so with that, John introduces into the story Peter, running parallel to the story of Jesus. Simon Peter mentions to the disciple that was laying on Jesus's uh, chest, he says to him, ask him which one he means. This is the question everyone in the room was asking, but only Peter, it seems, had the courage or the audacity to actually nudge the, the, the disciple closest to Jesus and say, hey, will you go ahead and ask him who it's going to be? Now, this could have meant a couple of things. On the surface level, it's, it's probably obvious. Well, you don't know who it's going to be, and so you've got to ask the question who it's going to be. But I think with Peter, I think that he was asking a deeper question. I think the one that perhaps he didn't verbalize, but what all of us know to ask, I think he was asking even the question, not who is it, but is it me? And the reason I think that is because if you follow Peter's story, it is a roller coaster ride of success and failure. Matter of fact, if you can follow his story beginning in Matthew chapter 4, you can see him on the lake. He's out on the water. Jesus meets him on the water. He calls him to follow him. He drops everything to follow him and embarks on this journey of saying, okay, I'm going to give my life to wherever this man goes. I'm going to follow him wherever he goes. And that sets a course in so many stories and so many, uh, so many unbelievable miracles and moments but a few stand back uh, out, out when you look at Peter's life. And I believe that in the moment, and much like you do when you're in a moment, sometimes you have flashbacks. You flash back to significant moments in our life. Uh, in your life, you, you see it, don't you? Like there's some moments in your life that just jump off the page. They're the moments that define you. 
while there's a lot of moments every day, there's a few that are isolated and actually seem to tell the tale of seasons in our life. And they begin to describe for us the character of who we are and the nature of who we are. And you get that with Peter. I mean, I wonder if his flashbacks took him back to that time when he was out on the lake in Matthew chapter 14, when they were out there and they see Jesus coming to them on the water. And he's walking on water and Peter sees him. And he's, again, the one that has the audacity to call out to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, if it's you, uh, ask and uh, allow me to come to you. And so what does Jesus do? He says, hey, come on out. And so Peter hops out of the boat. I mean, that takes great faith, right? That's an unbelievable moment. Nobody else had the audacity to actually step out of the boat like Peter did. But as the story goes on, that success actually came quickly with a failure. And as he approached closer to Jesus, scripture says that he dropped into the water and he heard those words from Jesus as Jesus pulled him up out, placed him back in the boat. He said, you of little faith. It almost seemed like from one moment to the next, you didn't know what you were going to get with Peter. And I got to believe for himself, he didn't know what he was going to get either. Matter of fact, if you just turn a couple of chapters, Matthew chapter 16, it's a similar story. Jesus questions the disciples and he says, hey, who do people say that I am? And Peter once again has the audacity to be the one to step up and say, hey, we believe that you're the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus says, you're exactly right. You got it right, but this was not revealed to you by flesh and bone. This was given to you by the spirit. And on your confession, I'm going to build my church. This is the exact thing that I'm going to build my church on. But Jesus, immediately after making that statement, tells them also the troubling news that he's actually going to die. And if you remember the story, Peter, again, jumps into the moment and he says, that'll never be. That's never going to happen to you. And the rock quickly hears a reprimand from Jesus. And Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan, because you don't have about you the things of God. In one second, it seems like he's doing great. The next second, it seems like he's doing awful. One second, he's being commended publicly. One, he's being, he's being uh, disciplined publicly. And in this moment, in John th chapter 13, when he has John ask Jesus, ask him which one he means. I just wonder if he was asking questions of himself. I mean, all of us ask those questions, don't we? We ask them in church services. We ask them in moments when we're alone, when life comes kind of into our face. We ask the questions, can I do this? Am I going to follow through? And with all the willpower we can muster, with all the strength and the might that we can concoct within ourselves, we make promises to God. We make promises to ourselves. And we experience the highs, but oftentimes we're followed by the lows of our own failure. And so in the story of Peter that's running parallel to Jesus, we see things begin to move in a trajectory in a very, very honest way, just like you and just like me. Well, as the story plays out, uh, we do know about Judas. And verse 30 tells us that as Judas took the bread, he went out. And then John sets the scene and he says... And it was night. He says these words because as we learned in our True Light series back in um, December, that John likes this motif, this theme, this idea, this picture uh, to try to communicate something. He uses light and darkness. And he talks about being in the presence of God and the presence of God revealing the truth about God. And we know that to be Jesus uh, from John's perspective. But what we also know is that when darkness comes, it is the absence of light. And so when Judas takes it and he goes, 
The scene is set. And what John wants to describe to us and pull us into the narrative with is the picture of what it looks like to move into the darkness. This sets the stage for, for everything that takes place next. And it begins to move into high gear. And matter of fact, there's so much compressed in the next few chapters. And to set the stage for that in John chapter 13, in the very next verse, in verse 31, when he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you a little, only a little while longer. You will look for me, and just as I have told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. Well, watch the response in the very next verse. What happens next? Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, where am I going? Where I'm going, you cannot follow, but you will follow later. And Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? And then he makes this statement, I will lay down my life for you. Now, I didn't highlight it up there, but one thing you can do when you're reading scripture on your own is you can look for repeated words. Uh, you can know that that's a way that the author's trying to emphasize something. And in John, another thing that he tries to emphasize consistently through it, especially as it relates to Peter and the disciples, is this word follow. And so everything in Peter's life up to this point had been predicated upon, built upon following Jesus wherever he went. That's the definition of what a disciple is and what a disciple does. Where he goes, where your master goes, where your rabbi goes, you follow in his footsteps. You learn to do what, you, what he does and you live your life as he lives his life. And that's what it means to be a disciple. And so what Peter's essentially saying is, this is who I am. I'm supposed to follow you. Where are you going? I have to know where you're going because where you're going, that's where I'm going to go because that's what I'm supposed to do. And Jesus stiff arms him and says, where I'm going, you can't follow. And Peter's response is, is the only logical response. He's heard what Jesus has said. He's starting to pick up on the tone of where Jesus is trying to go. And so what does he say? He says, I will lay down my life for you. He makes a promise to Jesus. And I, I just kind of have to believe in the humanness of Peter. I think he's still trying to do what we all do. He wants to do the right thing. His intention is good. There's, there's a great amount of intention uh, at, at his heart. I mean, he wants to follow Jesus. You can almost see it just kind of like pouring out of his mouth. And you can imagine what it was exuding uh, in the moment, right? You can see it and you can feel it. I will lay down my life for you. I will follow you anywhere. He's making promises to Jesus, but I think he's also trying to reaffirm himself, promises to himself. Well, Jesus, knowing him and knowing the future, answers him. And this is what he says. Will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will actually disown me, not once, but three times. Jesus, in the moment, saw the intention, heard the promises. I think he felt what Peter felt. But truth speaks into the moment. And the one that actually called Peter to follow him knew that Peter ultimately would fail him. And there's a whole story in that in and of itself is that God causes us, causes us and calls us to follow him knowing our failures. But he speaks into Peter these words that had to be really difficult to hear. You're actually going to disown me three times. 
And as movie scenes go, as uh, stories go, there's many scenes in a story. And if you follow the, the scene shift in the story, you begin to see this very story play out. In order to see it play out, you actually have to skip forward about five chapters into John chapter 18. And when you get to John chapter 18, there's a story of uh, the ultimate um, betrayal of Judas. What he went out to do and concoct was actually implemented and instigated in John chapter 18. When you get to John chapter 18, Judas returns back into the picture, but he doesn't come alone. He actually comes with an entourage, a militant group uh, of religious leaders and those that are affiliated with, and they have come to question and to arrest Jesus. And as they find Jesus, he's with Peter and some of the other disciples, and they have now changed scenes. No longer are they at the supper. Now they're in a garden. And as they approach Simon Peter, he steps into another moment. And in this story, he tries to come through on his promise. Even in the, you know, even in the demise of what Jesus would say, uh, in retribution of what Jesus would say, he says, no, I, I'm going to actually make a different future. And in John 18, 10, watch what Peter does. Peter jumps into the picture and he had a sword. Now, I don't know if he had a concealed carry or if this was just like something he stashed away, but he drew it and he struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. And we even get the servant's name. The servant's name was Malchus. And I think John does that because he wants to know this is not a made-up story. This is not a fable to try to give us some kind of encouraging truth. He's trying to tell us this is an actual person. And if you want to go find out if it actually happened, well, you can go ask the guy. And so he says Malchus has his ear cut off by Peter. This is Peter trying to come through on his promise. I will lay down my life for you. I will follow you anywhere. And in case you're confused, he wasn't neatly trying to dissect Malchus's ear. He was actually trying to cut off his head. Uh, maybe he was a bad shot or he just didn't, the guy ducked at the wrong time, but he ended up getting an ear instead of getting in a head. But he was destined, he was pushing into what he thought was going to be the solution to the idea that he would actually fail Jesus. And he was trying to come through on his promise. Well, you would expect Jesus to at least be grateful, all right? Thank you for defending me, but that's not what you get. Uh, again, Jesus confounds Peter, and he actually turns to him, and then this is what he tells Peter. He says, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and they brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. John wants to make sure that we know these characters. And so we're introduced back into the story, Annas and Caiaphas, who were the high priest uh, that year. And they become very big players in Peter's story because from here, they, the detachment takes Jesus. And when they take Jesus, uh, they take Jesus into the court of the high priest. And this becomes the central location for much of the rest of the story. This becomes the defining moment of Peter's life. But what's interesting about it is that Peter doesn't know yet, does he? Like you don't know that this is gonna be a defining moment for his life. He's just kind of going along with the scene. But if you follow the story, when you get to verse 15, what happens is you're ushered into a new moment 
Simon Peter and the other disciple were following Jesus now from a distance because the disciple was known to the high priest. He went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. So we've changed scenes now from a supper to a garden, and now we're in a courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside the door. And the other disciple who was known to the high priest came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. John's a masterful writer. I mean, he tells this story in such a way that you, you can feel it if you slow down. Everything's happening so fast, but you can see in the distance, you can see Jesus. And in the foreground, you can see Peter. And Peter is waiting at the gate of the courtyard. And he's looking into the moment before it actually takes place. And then as he's looking into the moment, he's actually ushered into the moment. And this is going to be the place where the climax of his life comes to a head. Where all the promises, all the tension, all the, all the angst, all the doubts and confusion, they come into one moment and it all happens simply with a question. Verse 17, we see the question. The question comes to him, you aren't one of this man's disciples, are you? Speaking of Jesus. And he replied, simply, I am not. It was cold. And the servants and officials stood around a fire that they had made to keep warm. And Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. That motif of light and darkness comes back into the play. And in the moment when he actually speaks the words, I am not, we have Peter with the light of a fire glowing on him, exposing his weakness in the dark. And this is what happens in all of our lives. We don't all know what moment is ahead of us. We all hope that our worst failure is not in front of us, but for Peter it was. And you've got to imagine what it was like to hear himself say those words. Have you ever been in a moment where you didn't like what you were doing? You were actually taking part in it and having a conversation with yourself and you would ask yourself the question. Nobody had to ask you. Nobody had to reprimand you. You didn't have to have a mom or a dad or a pastor there. Nobody, not, not a friend or a spouse, but you knew in that moment, this is not who I am. This is not what I'm supposed to be. This is not what I'm supposed to do. I cannot believe I'm doing this. I can't believe I'm saying this. I gotta believe that's what Peter was feeling in that moment. I think the flashbacks just got very real. I think he remembered in that moment that what Jesus had said, but I think he was so confused. I think he was so afraid and he failed. But his failure wasn't finished because remember what the prophecy was from Jesus. It won't just happen once, it's gonna happen three times. And so when he had finished that, he gets posed a second question He's still standing there warming himself. And so they ask him again, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? And he denied it saying, I am not. One of the high priest servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, Malchus, challenged him. Hey, listen, didn't I see you with him in the garden? I mean, he was there. This guy was there. And again, Peter denied it at the moment. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. So it all happens really fast for Peter. The first one he gets ushered into, and it's rapid fire. And isn't that the way it seems? Sometimes you fail once, and to the best of your ability, you try, oh, I'm not going to do that, and it just seems like it rushes. It just rushes. And it almost becomes muscle memory for us, failure. Uh, we do it once, and we say we're not going to do it, but we've created muscle memory. We, 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 
We create habits and approaches to life out of our fear. And so in the moment, he's ushered into the courtyard and the light's shining on him and he can't escape it. And at that moment, he hears a sound. And the sound is exactly what Jesus told him he would hear. He hears a rooster crowing after the third denial of Jesus. Now, this is significant on many levels, but one level that it's significant on is a really practical one. I mean, I don't know if you set an alarm clock at your house. Uh, most people today don't have alarm clocks. They have phones. And, uh, you know, you can pick your ringtone when you, you know, if you want to set your alarm to your phone, you can pick your ringtone. And I highly suggest that you change it from the default one that's on there because it's really annoying. But you set that ringtone, find something pleasant that's not too startling when you wake up. It doesn't, doesn't just pull you out of your sleep and scare you to death, right? But imagine for a second in a world before phones and a world before alarm clocks where everyone woke up to the sound of a rooster crowing, what it would be like to have your worst failure as your ringtone. At the moment that you uttered your denial to hear the sound that would wake you up every morning. And this is what Peter lived with. The time of my worst failure became the place that I could not get away from. Every time the rooster crowed, I would relive the moment and, and relive the promises, the broken promises that I made to Jesus, the, the weakness that I showed in the face of what I, all, this, uh, all this bravado when it, when it really came to it, when I was exposed for what I really am, I didn't come through. And now the rooster's crowing and I'm reminded daily of my failure. We can live that way, can't we? Some of you perhaps are like that today. You're living at the repeat of your worst failure and you can't get past it. It seems like it wakes you up every morning and it seems like it puts you to bed every night and you wish you could go back and you could change it, but you know you can't. And so you relive the moment. And when you relive the moment and you stay in the moment, it keeps you from moving forward. And so what is the, what, you know, what's the question? What do you do? What do you do when you've truly failed? When everything that you thought you believed and everything that, that you thought you'd build your life on is faded away. Because not only in this moment did Peter fail, but what he also watched in the distance is he watched Jesus being crucified. And so now he's failed. And now it looks like the promise of God has failed. It looks like from all, uh, uh, you know, things you can see, all visible exposure that when he looks at Jesus, this is the, the one that walked on water that raised Lazarus from the dead, and now he's dead too. What were those last three years about? You may ask, what were those last 10 years about? What were those last 20 years about? What do you do when you don't know what to do? Well, what Peter does is he logically goes back to the only thing he knows how to do, the thing he grew up doing. He goes back out and he begins to fish again begins to kind of pick up the pieces to his life, to do his best he can to move forward, knowing that he's living with his failure. Well, a lot happens in the next few days, in the next few weeks with Jesus. Uh, we know the story that he, uh, three days later, he came out of the grave, but that took some convincing. That would take some convincing to you, right? I mean, it, that's not a normal thing. Let's don't act like that's a normal thing. And so the disciples had to be convinced and in order to convince the disciples to actually reveal himself once again, Jesus, as he always did, and in the way that he started, he pursued them. 
And where did, he, where did he have to find Peter if he was going to pursue him? Well, he went to the place where he knew that Peter would be. And that was back out on the water fishing. And there's a whole dialogue that takes place and a whole scene that takes place, excuse me, uh, in John 21. But that scene when Jesus comes and he, he meets with Peter and the other disciples that are out fishing, it, it mirrors and similarly the first call for Peter. And there's a story where they begin to eat breakfast. They're around a fire once again. And that's a beautiful picture, right? The very place that we're told that he failed around a fire. Now Jesus in John 21 brings him back around a fire. And around the fire as they're eating, as the, as the heat of the flames are warming him and the light is shining on him, Jesus has a conversation with Peter. When they had finished eating, Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And two questions that had to start to click about the second question because, you know, somebody would say, well, I love, do you love me? And you say, yeah. And you think that the conversation's over, but Jesus wasn't finished. He asked a first question and he asked a second question. And as, as Peter's being confronted over the fire and in front, of, in front of Jesus, he's remembering simultaneously the moments that Jesus is actually trying to connect with. Do you love me? I am not. Do you love me? I am not. And then as the pain gets really real for Peter, it says this, it says, the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? And he said, you know all things, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. You know, we've been talking a lot about telling ourselves the truth, but let's not pretend. Sometimes the truth actually really hurts. To go through the process of actually being honest with ourselves is not always a pleasant experience. But what Jesus does is Jesus is willing to press on the wound to go through the hurt in order that he can heal. And in our lives, similarly, the things that we're trying to pull back from that God wants to come and connect with like a good father, like a loving doctor, he wants to come into the area of our life of our worst failure and he wants to press on the hurt, but he doesn't do it for shame and he doesn't do it to cause pain. He does it because sometimes the hurt is necessary for healing. And so he hurts Peter because he's got to be honest with himself and he's got to be honest with Jesus. There's no more hiding. There's no more promises. There's no more willpower. And what he hears from Jesus in the middle of his hurt is the simple call back to what he heard the first time, and that's simply to follow me. Follow me. You see, what Jesus had the privilege of knowing was he knew before Peter's failure that he would call him to follow him. And he knew his failure. And he knew that the way back was to truly begin again. And so what does he do? He takes him back to the beginning. He takes him away from the complexity of all the uh, minutia and all the details. And he says, hey, simply what does it mean? It means right here, 
right in front of the fa- in front of the fire, right in the midst of your failure. All I'm calling you to do is simply follow me and move forward in faith. And that is something that God calls us all to do. And the beautiful picture that we have with Peter is we have in real time the resurrected Jesus that in the midst of his worst moment was betrayed by one of his closest followers. And this time it wasn't Judas, it was Peter. He pursues Peter and says, I still want you to follow me. What would it look like or what would it sound like for you to hear the words today from Jesus in the midst of your failure? For him to simply say, follow me. Just follow me. He welcomes every single person to do that. For some of you, it could be the first time that you've ever actually embarked on the journey to follow Jesus. You've been trying to do it yourself for too long. For some of you, it's an area in your life where you've, you at one time were trying to follow Jesus and you were there, but you've had failure and failure and failure and you've got doubts and confusion and you don't know where to go. And all Jesus would say is, you don't have to have every answer, but all I'm asking you to do is follow me. What does that mean? That means simply to take a step. It means to take a step right where you are. And that's what happened with Peter. I mean, we get the benefit, again, of not having uh, the story end there. Though John's gospel ends there, we get to pick up the story of Peter uh, by the hand of Luke when he writes the book of Acts. And we get the story of Luke and the other disciples. They're in an upper room and they're waiting on something because Jesus had ascended. And he said, wait, I want you to wait in a spot because the Holy Spirit's going to come. And when the Holy Spirit gets there, he's going to come and he's going to live inside you. You're not going to have Jesus next to you. You're going to have me inside you. And you're going to have the power to do what you couldn't do on your own. And we see the power of the Spirit come in in an unbelievable way, rushing in, as Scripture says, like fire and wind. And all of a sudden, these, these disciples that were fearful and coward and confused, now they step out of this room and they step onto the streets and they're bold and they're confident. And, and Peter's right there leading the charge. He steps out and he preaches this message on the day of Pentecost and thousands of people, it was a beautiful scene, thousands of people begin to follow Jesus in that moment in Jerusalem. But that instance got him into some hot water. And what happened on the street in the sermon started to take place in the lives of individuals. And one most notable individual was a lame man that would stand at the temple, uh, sit at the temple all the time waiting to be healed, asking to be healed. Peter and John told him they didn't have money, but they actually said, what we do have, we give to you. And so they healed the man and he was able to stand up and walk. And word got out. And when word got out, the temple officials got involved and they said, well, we we thought we had this thing nixed. We thought we had the the head cut off of the snake when we killed Jesus. And now they're saying that this Jesus is resurrected, that this guy is back to life. And now there's more followers than there were before. What in the world is going on? And so they round up Peter and John. They bring him back to a familiar location, not the supper, not the garden, but the courtyard. And they bring him back in front of the temple officials and watch what happens in this post-credit scene, if you will, with, with Peter. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law went, met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there. And so was Caiaphas. We know these people, right? John, Alexander, and the others of the high priest's family. So the whole family's there. Everybody that would have known and had a familiarity with this scene, they're back there again. And who's there with them? They had Peter and John brought before them 
ushered into the moment and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? And the stage is set. And this is what happens. This is the answer. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, this is what he says, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. The man that said, I am not, I can't be associated with his name, now is brought back into the same moment in front of the same types of people and in the place of his greatest failure becomes the display of his greatest transformation. We're able to see on full display what it looks like for someone to actually begin again. And so let me ask you a question. What would it look like for you to go back to the place where you failed one time, two times, multiple times, a place of your worst failure, and for that to actually be the place where the display of the forgiveness and the grace and the glory of God is so evident on your life that in the moment that one time you lived in fear, you're able to go back in and you're able to say in that moment, then know this, know this. And you're able in that moment to be transformed, not by your own willpower anymore, not by broken promises and uh, best intentions, but by this time, the power of the spirit is on your life in such a way that people don't even see you, they see the glory of God on your life. You see, that's the invitation to begin again. And God offers that to each one of us. And he doesn't just give us proposition, he gives us people, because we're people. And I know this about you and I know it about myself, there's gonna be failure in our future. But in the face of failure in our future, I think what God's call is for all of us today is to follow me, is to simply follow me. We've been praying uh, or usher waiting in or moving into a time of prayer where we're asking God to meet with us in a profound way. We're asking for the presence of God over the next few weeks with Saturate to say, God, will you do something in us that we can't do ourselves? I mean, what we're asking as a church is not more programs and not more strategies, but we're asking for the power of God to come in and do what we could not do. Uh, not our best effort, not our best foot forward, but we're asking God to come in and transform us and transform our community. But here's the thing is that God doesn't wanna do something just out there. He wants to do something in here. He wants to do something in each one of us. And the Holy Spirit wants to come in and empower you with the grace of God and the glory of God to actually transform you. And he promises that if we'll call upon that name that's given to us by which we can be saved, he says that if you call upon that name that the Holy Spirit will come, that he is not withholding himself from you. And so if you've got this picture of God that he's looking at your failure and saying, you don't deserve me and so get away from me, know this, that what we have with Jesus is we have a God that has pursued us through the failure and has been faithful to us through our failure. And so you can come confidently to him based on what he's done for you. And so we wanna end this series simply with a call 
okay, a call for each one of us to say, I want to follow you. As simple as that. Not a lot of promises, not a lot of specific promises. I'm never going to do that again. I'm not asking you to make any promises to God except saying to God right now, I will follow you. I want to follow you. And some of you, that might be the first time. You've never called upon God before. You've been to church. You're familiar with church. And I'm not asking you to join this church. I'm not asking you to give a dime of money ever here, anything like that. But I'm asking you to be very honest and transparent with God and honest with yourself is what are you trusting in for salvation? And maybe today for you, it could be as simple as just push all the stuff away, all the history away and all the failure away and just say, God, I'm going to follow you. I want to follow you. And you can begin the journey to follow him. Call upon him and say, God, I want to do that. And he will take you on those two simple words to begin the process of being changed. Some of us in the room, we've got very specific things in our life right now where we need to begin again. Relationships, habits, mindsets, patterns. And so right now in those specific situations and instances, will you speak that to God too in this area? I'm not promising I'm going to be perfect, God. I simply want to follow you. I want to follow you. And I think if we all do that in this moment right now, God will begin to shape us into a place where his presence will rest because we're submissive to him. So I want to give you just a second, if you would, to call upon him, but I'm going to pray over you. Heavenly Father, we thank you right now for loving us. We thank you, God, that when we call, you answer us. You've been pursuing us. You've been faithful through all of our failure. And you were faithful to the end. You gave your life up for us. And in doing so, God, you came back to life. You overcame death on our behalf so that we could walk into freedom and wholeness. And so we come to you today, God, with all these things. And we say to you, God, God, will you move in our lives and empower us to follow you? That's our heart's cry today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you stand to your feet.